Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I'm speaking to you from Wurundjeri country and would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening today. I would also like to acknowledge the ongoing role that colonisation and racist regulation has had on First Nations, but also First Nations resilience and survival in continuing to connect and practice the oldest living culture in the world. Today I speak with Karen Tui, the ACT Discrimination, Health Services and Disability and Community Services Commissioner which she's been in the role since 2016. Uh, Karen has a long history working in human rights, regulation and complaints, previously working in senior executive uh, and commissioner, assistant commissioner roles at the Australian Human Rights Commission, the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission and the Office of the Australian Information Commission. In the episode today, we had a wide-ranging discussion on how she approaches her role. Complaints handling and regulation in the human rights space is hard. At least not because Karen has so many different areas and industries that she handles complaints from. But that breadth allowed for a fascinating conversation about what I think of as street level justice provided by these complaints bodies. I think of it as street level justice because these processes are far more accessible than going through laborious and costly court processes. Now, quick note, my audio was a bit choppy and that's because it was 36 degrees in Melbourne and I just had to keep my fan on. Uh, so sorry, not sorry. I hope you enjoy the episode. So please enjoy this episode, subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or Spotify. Um, well, thanks so much, Karen, for, for being here. Uh, as you'd know, in this podcast, the first question that we ask everyone is, why does regulation matter to you and to your community? Yeah, thanks, Simon, and thanks again for the opportunity. Um, regulation matters to me, I think, um, A, it gives me a job to do, which I am very appreciative of. <laughs> um, but I think there's also that thing about regulation and particularly coming out of my space where I, I work in a human rights space. It's very much about um, the community's relationship with government. So it, it gives some definition to that and some expectations for that and also gives some processes around that. Um, it, but it also speaks to community members, business, organisations in community about what our expectations are for them. Um, about how we expect them to operate in our community, about how we expect them to relate to people in the community. Um, and it also sends very clear messages about what our values are. So if I think about my jurisdictions, and, and I know we'll get to that a bit later, but for example, in the human rights space um, or in the discrimination law space, because that's a, a more common feature, I guess, for many people to understand, is what's that saying to people is we expect people to be able to participate in our community in public life without barriers because of their race, their age, their disability, because they've been subjected to family violence, because they have a visa. So it's, it's really about setting those expectations, but it's also a very strong expression of what our values are. And it's very much about saying, and, it, and if that's not your experience, there's something you can do and there's a place you can go to try and get that remedied. 
and, and that might be an explanation or, or a, you know, apology or a conciliation, or it might be someone saying, actually, I know that was your experience, but that's not actually what occurred here. And so I think there's a real, um, you know, it's a, it's often seen as, I guess, a heavy, heavy handed thing. Whereas I guess I come at it from much more a person centered approach and be that person sitting in community and being someone who is saying, why is my experience of this health service or, or this employer or trying to access this service? Why is that not what I expected? Um, but equally, it's saying to organisations, we expect you to take steps so that people aren't discriminated against in accessing your services and that they're not being treated less favourably because they have a disability or because of their age. And so it, it's not a Pollyanna approach, um, but I think it's a, a, irrespective of what the sector is that you're regulating or what the nature of the regulation is, it's not it is about setting community expectations and it's also about putting those expectations onto the organisations that want to operate in our community and it's part of their social contract. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's kind of, um, uh, it's the the price of entry, right, into, into the marketplace or into the public square in the sense that if you want to um, be a business or you want to be an organisation operating in the space, these are kind of the rules of the, the game that you need to follow follow and and without sounding too far north queensland um you know it's kind of about a fair go in, in a way that you know some rules of fairness and equality that um that we all intuitively kind of expect um so you you alluded there i i know when i looked at one of your your office's diagrams that um it's more of an octopus but meaning you've got a lot of different um a lot of different areas you operate in but so could you explain your role as discrimination health uh, services disability and community services commissioner so what are you what are you trying to achieve um out of your office or what's what's your mandate Yes, so I sit within the ACT Human Rights Commission. I'm in a very fortunate position here. Um, my remit, as you've just described, is quite broad. So I handle, I'm the discrimination commissioner, so I handle all matters related to discrimination in the ACT. I'm the health services commissioner, so I regulate health practitioners and health services in the ACT, take complaints about them, work with the national regulator in that space. Um, I'm also the Disability and Community Services Commissioner, so I deal with matters to do with disability services, older people's services, services for children and young people, including fun areas like child protection services in the ACT. Yeah. Um, I have a little jurisdiction called the Vulnerable People Jurisdiction, um, which uh, enables me to deal with matters related to abuse, neglect or exploitation of people over 60 or people with disabilities in the ACT community. Um, I also deal with occupancy disputes and that includes for international students and students from with education providers, um, retirement villages. Uh, most recently, I now also deal with complaints about um, the Charter of Rights for Victims of Crime in the ACT. Oh. So that's with the justice agencies in the ACT. And I also, uh, have a jurisdiction around uh, sexuality and gender identity conversion practices. So it's a fairly broad, <laughs> uh, it's a fairly broad remit. There are slightly different powers and functions across some of those areas. Um, but the way that we, and sometimes I'm called the value for money commissioner, that's my nickname. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
Um, but it, it's an interesting thing in a small jurisdiction that the consolidation of all those functions means that for a lot of people, uh, and as we know for some of those groups, there's going to be different barriers that they have in accessing different parts of public life. Um, but it's also there in groups that often have a very high level of government intervention, be that through access to mental health services, be that child protection services, be that even access to education or employment, um, things like health services in a small jurisdiction, we have a small number of health providers. And so people's, in, people's reliance on some of those providers also comes with it a high level of government intervention. And so I think the, the benefit of having us in one spot is people can bring those concerns to us and sometimes it doesn't easily fit within one of them, but it might actually fit within another one. And so sometimes, for example, in the mental health space, we're not just dealing with a health complaint, we're also reframing it as a discrimination complaint because actually what's happened is in accessing that service or being provided that treatment, the person's been treated less favourably because of their mental illness. Um, so it's a it, it gives me a broad base to work from, um, but I also think, and I think certainly, you know, one of the areas that we've seen recently with COVID-related matters, much so I hate to use the C word in this sort of conversation, um, is for example, issues in aged care, where people might have gone to the Aged Care Quality Complaints Commission, not been entirely happy with the response they got there, brought the matter to us because it's around visiting rights or it's around you know, access to mum, particularly during the recent Omicron sort of surge. Particularly that happened over Christmas. And so the decision-making around even though mum's vaccinated, everyone who works with her is vaccinated, everybody in the place is vaccinated, the family's vaccinated, we've still got limitations being put on her when she goes back into the facility. And so because of the breadth of our role, we were able to, to bring some of those matters in and actually work with government on getting slightly more systemic outcomes. So rather than just dealing necessarily with the service, which we did, we were also able to get some of the directions that had been issued by our chief health officer in the aged care space sort of clarified a bit um, to provide better guidance to the providers in the ACT. Oh my gosh. See, so... I talk a lot. Ah, that's so interesting. So interesting. I, um, I, I was, yeah, yeah, it was all good stuff. Um, uh, the, the, it was so interesting hearing you say that because I, just, I imagine for folks in Canberra or the ACT more generally, having a place to go like your organisation would make it very valuable. It really highlights the value of regulation to, to a community, particularly because it can provide that holistic kind of rights or fairness enforcement, um, however you want to kind of characterise that. Uh, it. I can imagine uh, in the eyes of lots of community members, it, it becomes this, I don't want to overstate it, but a, a point of refuge if you think that you're not being treated fairly. Um, with, you know, by contrast, as you know, here in Victoria, uh, our regulatory system, because the, the, the landscape is much broader, is much more fractured where you regulate along you know, discrete um, lines that, you know, don't actually necessarily represent people's issues. You alluded to you know, issues within health services, as you'd know here in Victoria, somebody's treatment within a mental health service 
could have equal opportunity issues and that would go to our human rights mm. commission there could be an upper issue there could be a mental health compliance commissioner issue then there's the chief psychiatrist has their jurisdiction and so very complicated regulatory landscape where people have to go and then i didn't say our ombudsman i should add to that too who regulates the charter um, in an indirect sense and so many different places to go but nowhere where someone can get the kind of core kernel of their issue addressed and so that really highlights to me a question of how can we better integrate our our regulatory systems in a larger landscape like that like victoria that's a question without notice, but does anything come up for you when 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 I say that? Yeah, and I think that um, I think one of the issues that that in the larger jurisdictions where you've got, got different organisations, we all talk about referral pathways. I you know completely support my colleagues in being appropriate in that space. I think one of the things um, that I think coming from a human rights background maybe is that lens of being able to look at a matter not just with the lens that I've got from a jurisdiction perspective, because I'm actually looking at it from a human rights perspective. And so if it's raising other issues, my sense is I've actually got a responsibility to make sure that that person understands all their options, because that's one of my public authority obligations is to make sure they know their rights. So it's not, it's not just about, um, it's not just about what I can help them with, but it's also about understanding where I might need to provide appropriate referrals to other places. And I think one of the things that we, you know, and certainly even when I was in Victoria, I think we could have done a better job of it, was understanding, um, you know, that giving someone the phone number to go somewhere is is excellent, but it's not, it's not dealing with with the fact that they've already rung six places to get to you. And I think a lot of people, one of the one of my learnings over many years is that the people that actually make it to me have worked generally quite hard to get here. And so sometimes it's yet they've picked up the phone because something happened 10 seconds ago, but sometimes they've finally picked up the phone because whatever's happening has actually caused them such distress or such harm or is such a barrier that they finally have you know have made their way to dr google and founders and most often people will only find us when they've got a problem that they need fixed but we tend not to have people you know rocking up to the human rights commission for for what i would say is you know trivial matters um and i think that's another misnomer about our sort of complaints bodies that you know a lot of the matters we get are, are just whinges or whatever whereas that's certainly not my experience and I think it's it's one of the things that, you know, we certainly try and work with our staff on is A, providing a very dignified and respectful response, no matter what the question is and what the approach looks like, um, but B, making sure that we're fulsome in understanding what the person's real need is. And if I, if I can't meet it, then my job is to find the place that it can and work out what the best way of getting that person to them is. Sometimes that's me ringing that organisation and saying, can you call them? Sometimes that's my staff saying to the person, we're going we're to make contact with them and then I'm going to call you back and give you a name. So I think there's part of it is a lens in terms of understanding what all those other organisations do. But it's also, you know, and I'm not in favour of, you know, this notion of a single door because the fact is all our doors lead in different directions and that would be, <laughs> you know, I think, I think that's not helpful. Um, 
but I do I do think that regulators, particularly in these sorts of spaces, not so much ASIC and those guys, but in these sorts of person-centred complaint mechanisms, regulatory spaces, could certainly do a, a, a good job of understanding what other organisations do and being more helpful in how those in how those pathways are, are formed. Yeah, it's I, I so strongly agree. And and when you say that, it highlights to me again the maybe um, you know a culture of um, if that's a cult, the right way to say it, a culture of your office or the way, or your approach to to being in the community itself. Sometimes regulators can kind of adopt almost a, the the stance or the self-image of a court which is quite detached and separate from the environment in which it works whereas what you're talking about is very much you know not getting overly involved but in the weeds in terms of you're out there in the community or 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 you know the community that you're working within and the landscape you're working in uh, within so that you can find the right door for for someone to to go through um i I imagine no i was just going to say and i think one of the you know, one of the things that we deal with is uh, is I sit within the Human Rights Commission, and so people off pe- people's perception is often the Human Rights Commission deals with refugees, international law, and getting people out of Afghanistan. So I'm a <laughs> no, none of which our government to distill it down. Well, no, no, I shouldn't say. <laughs> um, you know, but I but I but what we try and get people to understand is that is that they're all very legitimate purposes, but my purpose is about what's the barrier in your life that I can deal with that will help you go about having a better life, having having an explanation for what's happened to you, having some confidence when you go back to that service because we know you're going to have to go back to that service because we're a small jurisdiction. You're going to have to go back to that school. You're going to be dealing with the education directorate for the next 15 years because your child is only 10 years old, you know, or eight years old or whatever. And so it, it, I'm not, and again, I'm not Pollyanna. I'm very conscious of where we sit in terms of impartiality and those sorts of things. But um, I think certainly my approach is aimed not to be a strong gatekeeper around all the requirements people have to meet before they can bring something into us as an as a inquiry or a claim. But it's also just understanding that people don't naturally look to our sort of organisation to help them with their housing problem or with their you know, family violence issues or with their education issues. Um, and so how do, I make, how do I make us accessible in such a way that people, people feel confident in at least contacting us to ask that question? If they're concerned about their neighbour, which is my current thing, they're concerned about their neighbour and potential elder abuse or neglect, I want that person to feel confident calling us and I want them when they call us to have a respectful response. And yeah. so even, even if that's not me, it might be us saying, we will put you in contact with the community liaison person in the AFP because that's the best person for you to speak to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It, it um, uh, Often when we talk about human rights, we, I imagine lots of community, and I certainly know when, 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 at a time when I was less familiar with it, I think of human rights as being the UN General Assembly on the ground floor there, um, you know, or the International Court of Justice and whatnot. But we don't think of human rights as being relevant to to the neighbour, to the GP clinic, uh, 
you know, to the lack of a, a wheelchair, wheelchair ramp or accessibility issues within the workplace. And so I imagine, like you say, it is uh, being a trusted port of call for people to, th- to think of you. And then I imagine that the flip side of that, um, which we can try to try to get to in a sec, is ensuring that service providers or public authorities, which is kind of government departments or, or what or services de- delivering government funded services for those who don't know the term, uh, that they think about things a little bit in terms of rights as well, which doesn't come um, intuitively to, to a lot of folk. I might jump to that. And so I guess one of those common challenges um, for you um, is to be responsive to the uh, to the industri- industries that you regulate. So in the eyes of uh, a health service, in the eyes of an aged care service, in the eyes of a, gen- you know, a corner store, it, are you in touch with their reality um, so that you're not just sprouting the law at them um, in a way that doesn't really understand their context? So are you responsive to their circumstances? But by the same token, not being captured by those industries. And by that, um, regulatory capture for the listeners um, is, I guess, when uh, a regulator kind of loses their bearings a little bit and comes to serve the interests of the industry uh, rather than having, I guess, a, a neutral or objective kind of enforcement or implementation of law. So how do you strike that balance between responsiveness and, and kind of regulatory capture? And, and is my characterization a, a fair one of that challenge? Yeah, I think sometimes when you, when you talk about regulators maybe losing their way in that space, some, sometimes I think it's that notion of whatever that sector is, it, we need it to stay up and running. And so it's not, it's not trying to compromise how the service is being provided or the way they're going about their business, but it's trying to find that way of making sure that that service or business is able to keep doing what it does because the absence of it is going to be a big problem. Um, and, and I guess where I find my balance is, um, again, coming out of a very, you know, a fairly long, unfortunately, or fortunately, um, working in um, the discrimination law space particularly. But prior to that, I worked in the private sector for years. And so the discrimination law space, you know, we regulate the private sector. And so you you can't just go to your, you know, hairdresser and to Qantas with the same approach and with the same <laughs> conscious on the public record for a number of these matters. So I'm not calling them out for any particular reason. Um, but you know what I mean? Like you've, you've got to have an approach that both of those organisations can understand what, yes, what the law's about, what the expectations are, why the person's brought the matter to us. Why am I involved? Why is the Human Rights Commission calling me? Um, in a way that doesn't undermine the objective of the complaint process which is we're trying to get an outcome for the person who brought the complaint if that's an appropriate outcome Mm. so if if there isn't anything in the complaint that's fine that's my responsibility to go back to the person with the information I've got from the respondent and talk them through that Um, but if they're if if the parties are interested in resolving the matter then that's that you know that's sort of the purpose of my, my involvement in that and so I need to bring the parties together in that space 
you know, the, the rock throwing approach does not work. And so I think particularly in discrimination law, I guess it, there's so much emphasis on is it, a, is it about a particular characteristic of the individual? And so that has taught me very much about the individual's engagement with, with that organisation or with that service, because whatever their experience has been, they've taken it as being some harm to them because of an individual characteristic. And so uh, I think that, you know, and that's why, as I said, I'm certainly not Pollyanna, but we do try and take a person-centred approach in our matters because it, the organisation, you know, and people will say, I've got fairly broad systemic powers, so I can initiate what we call commission-initiated considerations, which are own motion investigations. We, we do many of those. Um, I can do big reports. I've done those big public reports in this jurisdiction and others. Um, but sometimes the sometimes the thing that will shift a respondent and will get them to understand the perspective of the person bringing the claim to them is that conversation with the individual about their experience. And so I have to be able to facilitate that. And I can't, we can't do that in good faith, A, if we've overstepped our boundaries in terms of my role as an impartial regulator or if it looks like I'm using it as a vehicle to try and achieve a different outcome. Um, but equally, you know, we bring people together in a, in a respectful and considered way. And certainly it's not about wasting their time, but sometimes we do have that conversation about, actually, we think this, we think this matter is gonna benefit from conciliation, even though you can't see what the issue is, because that conversation is gonna be of significant benefit to you in terms of understanding the person's experience of your service. And you don't want the next person to have, the, to have that same experience. And so uh, we, we th I think about it as I've got to build my capital with both with community and with the organisations that I work with or regulate in that I've got to be respectful with them all. And that's respectful about process, but it's also respectful about time and resources and all those things. And so I can't possibly be using the same process for every single matter I get. That's, it's not appropriate. And so, I think some of the, you know, some of the really, um, the things that have certainly guided me in the years that I've worked in these spaces are some of those conversations, both from complainants about what a crap experience they had of, of a process that I oversaw, but equally from a respondent's point of view saying, why have you taken, you know, 18 months to deal with this matter when I offered 16 months ago to sit down with the person? And so... <laughs> you know, that you've lost all the benefit and in fact, you've now got a retract, you know, a, an intractable problem because yeah. all you've done is work with them to embed the behaviours. Yeah. And so I don't think we, uh, you know, we, like I said, I talk about it as social capital in terms of I need to have capital with people so that when I go to an organisation and say this person that who's got two kids that you're evicting into homelessness because her partner was on the tenancy, not her. Can, can we have a discussion about what this actually looks like? Because what, what we're going to end up with is a mum and two kids on, on the street, literally. And so uh, the, uh, they need to respect the fact that I do that when it's necessary and when, you know, there's a, there's a significant human rights implication of what's occurring here. Um, but equally, they know that when a matter, you know, a, a matter that, 
doesn't have substance or that doesn't require a significant intervention, that that's not, you know, I'm not going to do it just for the sake of it or for the sake of looking like I'm throwing rocks at somebody because they're in the media or whatever. Um, that's, a, that's a bit of a crass way of putting it. But I think, um, you know, I think there's spaces where you can, you know, we, we do have broad powers, but with broad powers comes a, a broad responsibility and also a broad responsibility to build trust. And that's <laughs> that's not just with complainants or my community groups or my advocates, that's equally with the organisations that we have, we have to work with who I may never have dealt with them before. Tomorrow I'm going to pick up the phone. I'm going to expect them to cooperate with my process. And so how I go about my business has a profound effect on the outcomes that we can achieve. I, I like that we've gotten Spider-Man in there. Um, I don't know that with with great powers come great regulatory responsibilities, uh, or broad powers and broad responsibilities. Uh, I think that 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 uh, highlights a, a number of issues. When you were talking earlier about making the complaints process similar for uh, you know the corner store to to Qantas let's say Ansett let's say Ansett you know they, they can't uh, they're, they're, they're a previous they can't fight uh, back at the moment they can't fight back yeah exactly uh, uh, that it's very different to a court you know a court you know in, in a lot of respects and this is a bit of a, a, a unfair sort of dichotomy but it's the same process yeah. every time uh, same process every time the same procedures you're effectively rendered um, the same legal subject or person who has to go through that process and, and it looks at you blindly. Whereas when you're talking about justice in your context, it's far murkier, far more discretionary and, and in a lot of ways uh, contingent upon the values that you spoke about at the beginning. And, and to some extent, I imagine that's what's foregrounded or what what surrounds those values is is, is a human rights framework to to help you navigate that kind of far more, is it a discretionary or a intuitive or? Um, I'd, I'd say it's responsive. Response. I mean, <laughs> yes, yes. like, I don't think it's murkier. I think it's responsive in That's that I, I've, you know, I've got the benefit of a regulatory framework here where we've got multiple approaches that we can use. And sometimes we have to use all of them to get to the outcome that we're all trying to get to but sometimes um you know if i and i think it's come up in you know recently in a couple of matters we've dealt with in the particularly in the elder abuse space where we're we're moving into a space where we're looking at people's interactions within their family and so i cannot possibly use the same approach that i use with ANSET or you know in some <laughs> Apart, apart from the fact they've got different pathways, so my ANSET matters can go off to the tribunal. And so my role in that is quite clear in terms of can we resolve it? Can we get the right information for the parties? Can we provide them a, a vehicle by which we can get to resolution versus in, in something like elder abuse where there isn't a pathway at the moment to a tribunal and we're trying to navigate that space of someone's child not letting them return home from hospital and having cut off their services to enable them to return home from hospital and helping themselves to their bank account. And so the, so the approach we have to take obviously is quite different um, 
in terms of even how we get that person to engage. I mean, the last thing I want is for them to hang up the phone and not, you know, us not be able to have that discussion. And so there's there's a real, um, and I think sometimes that can be part of the problem with large jurisdictions is that you absolutely, yes, you need to triage your matters and, and all that sort of stuff, but we're starting from the assumption that I've only got two or three options to work with, whereas I think sometimes there is more flexibility, um, but we need to bring that to the process as opposed to, you know, just pushing it either down the preliminary assessment or down the investigation or whatever. We actually need to have the capability internally to be able to be a bit more flexible in those approaches. Yes, and and one of the things I I think... uh... In my experience, regulators, some of the regulators I've come across don't do well is understanding things sometimes from a, um, a systems perspective in terms of what are the key leverage points for change. And sometimes it's not going through that paper-bound process of an investigation or it might be a quick call. Um, it might be a signalling of what your powers could be or, or, or could use down the line. Uh, it could be going laterally and, uh, you know, trying to get that outcome uh, through civil society where you lead a process and bring civil society uh, along with you. But I don't think that a lot of regulators, particularly the ones that aren't um, connected to their community, necessarily think in those terms. Uh, I think from the perspective of lots of regulators, they would view that as losing their objectivity, but I my, my view is that, that that wouldn't be the case. I don't I don't know how you you relate or respond to that. I think you I think you can be very clear from an expectation setting perspective about you know we're very we're very clear about I'm an impartial complaint handler. That's you know that's a large part of my role alongside policy and legal and all those other things. Um, I, I've often found that um, it, yes, part of my job is to make sure am I the, am I the only person who can deal with this. Is there someone better who can deal with it? In which case, why am I not working with them on it? Um, if if there are, if I am the best person to deal with it, what are the best tools I've got? And sometimes, as you say, it's not it's not the paper based approach. I've certainly found going to visit people um, and going doing a walk around with them and understanding their business and understanding the people who are there. Um, sometimes that, as you know. <laughs> Sometimes observing something is enough to, you know, nudge it in a different direction. Um, sometimes even just sending out that thing saying, I'm making, you know, I am making some inquiries because this matter has been brought to my attention. Um, can you give me this information? And what you're doing there, as you say, is signalling that here are the five things that I think you need to have a look at because they've been brought to my attention and they appear not to meet the standards that we expect. Um, it, you know, in that in that famous hierarchy, there's a lot of, you know, transactional work that you do in terms of resolving matters and moving matters through. There's the mid-range work where you are doing some of that longer term work and looking at things from a systemic perspective and building those relationships and working with the organisations. And then sometimes you do those really big, you know, pieces of work that take a couple of years or whatever. But what I find often is once we start that piece of work, the changes start happening. Mm. And so by the time I'm at the end of the piece of work, some of that stuff's already happened. And mm. we can say, well, we're not, I'm not taking credit for it, but 
look at all the things that have happened that have improved over this period of time. Yeah. And so yeah. I think that, I mean, in my experience, most people are in the, you know, are doing what they do for good reason. Mm. And so once you highlight to them what the issues are or how people have had a poor experience of what they're doing, where it's within their power, then they will often, you know, do their damnedest to try and improve what they're doing or to fix the problem or to at least commit to a program of work. Um, I think in some of those really complex spaces like mental health, mm. you know, you need the individual matters that really highlight where some of the decision-making might ha not have been at its best. Mm. And that actually becomes the trigger, not for me to do something, but for the organisation often to do something. Yeah. Um, we have the ability in our legislation, yes, to put out reports and to, and to name and shame. So we can make adverse comment. You know, we have to go through all the usual procedural fairness and all those sorts of things. But often when we're doing that, it's with a it's with a view to a bigger outcome. So, for example, a recent one that we did to do with the school in Canberra, where there was some quite egregious behaviour, we did we did put out a report. Um, but what that led to was legislative reform around the regulation of independent schools in the ACT. Mm. It's one matter. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in doing that piece of work, we realised there were actually five other regulators working in the space already. And so my part was around the kid, the children's welfare. It wasn't so much about the governance. It wasn't about the finances, mm. some of those things. But it was very much about actually we've got a child welfare issue on our hands. Mm. And so how do I work with the ACT government to make sure that something happens in that space? Yeah. So, you know, and so I think there's... I think sometimes, and part of it's resource-driven, that that we do follow the same process for many things. Mm. I certainly learned in Victoria um, when I was at the Human Rights Commission there that one of the things that we tried to do was to look for the matters that we weren't getting because the reason I wasn't getting it was that those people, it, sometimes in, the, in particular cohorts, were so disadvantaged or were so afraid that they could not bring a matter to our attention. And so, for example, a piece of work down there that we did called Desperate Measures was a report around kids with disabilities being relinquished into state care, which was brought to our attention by an advocate, had never crossed our paths in terms of a complaint. In terms of signalling to government that there was a significant issue in terms of resourcing those families, most often with kids with disabilities, and this is pre-NDIS. And so, you know, it was at that point in time where issues around kids with disabilities, access to school, access to services, you know, was just sort of bubbling away. And I think a couple of the pieces of the work that we did very much put it on the radar in terms of it's not a transactional environment. You can't deal with this one by one. You've actually got to have a systemic response. Um, and so I, so I do... You know, I do think um, for some of the some of my regulatory colleagues where they've got a single jurisdiction, I sort of feel a bit sorry for them sometimes um, because, <laughs> because we are able to bring multiple lenses to to the same matter. But I think, as you know, in Victoria with the human rights framework, that is a really good accountability mechanism, not just for government, but for community absolutely. to use to hold government to account. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Key, key part of um responsive regulation is that um the community civil society are 
are holding both regulators and governments to to account uh, for for their performance. Uh, I, I totally Which means agree. they've got to be involved in the work. So yeah. you've got to you've got to go out and see them where they are. Sometimes yeah. that might be in a secure mental health facility. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes but... that might be in their home. Sometimes that you know there's a there's a range of ways to engage with people mm. um, but you can't discount what people are saying because of their particular circumstance no but um as i guess my as my heart sinks i do notice that uh that so many of these processes are not as transparent or accessible or um to to draw on on my arts degree that there's a kind of epistemic injustice there in that certain people's evidence you know a person with lived experience evidence isn't as as valued as say a um, a psychiatrist's perspective on on what happened um, on a particular issue or on a particular policy issue so you know do do we frame things about how to how to understand the mental health system around a a sort of really strictly biomedical lens Um, and that's got a lot of uses that is the predominant one that is used or do we frame it around a human rights lens do we frame it around the way in which people with lived experience experience that issue of the system and my unfortunate reflection is that uh, very often um, the issues are framed you know around the the needs of of, of the system uh, uh, and and certainly the um, part of that is because the people want the people who involve who, who need the who need to speak are often not accessed because they're in 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 hospitals but when they are their evidence often isn't as valued or or treated as credible um, again I love that we have gone off track but I don't know if you had a reflection on that um uh, funnily enough, I do. You'll notice I have a reflection on just about everything that you talk about. So, <laughs> um, look, I think when, when again, in Victoria, we did a very early piece of work on the engagement of police with people with a disability and people's experience of reporting to police. And not to single out police, but it it was that interface of here's a group that really needs to access that services that service and as you say when they access that services there are often particular stereotypes or particular attitudes that become a barrier to them having equal access to those services um i'm fortunate in the act in that one of my colleagues here in the commission is the victims of crime commissioner and about two years ago, we worked on a disability justice strategy. And one of the things that came out of that strategy was an intermediary program. And so that program is very much about supporting people with disabilities, um, particularly who are reporting crime or appearing as witnesses, supporting them in that process. And that's been a very successful program. But what it what it's highlighted to us is that that issue that you raise about people when they access services have to work through the you know sort of the the barriers put up because of what life story they bring with them or what you know what characteristics they bring with them in in my language um that that is much more pervasive sometimes than we think it is and so we've we in our work here often have to go back to basics around thinking you know we actually have to talk to people um not because they're bad or mean or whatever, 
but because it's not been part of their experience. And so what we sort of think of as bread and butter is not necessarily everybody's um, everybody's take on it. And yet they're the front line, often the front line in a lot of these services. And so I think one of the things I talked to you about previously was we'd been doing some work in the discrimination space, trying to articulate what discrimination looks like in some of these settings. So for example, when one of my, um, one of the people who comes to us sometimes who has a mental illness, she also had a back injury. And when she went into one of our EDs, after sitting there for quite some time without being seen and she was getting a little bit heightened about her back injury, she, um, she ended up in the ED, she ended up in our mental health unit on an order for 11 days. Back injury, not seen. <laughs> yeah, and, I, knew, I knew where that was headed within the <laughs> um. and so, And I think part of the issue is, like, I'm seeing that, um, I, th I think some of the matters I'm seeing at the moment I see, because we have the health service jurisdiction and I'm the discrimination commissioner, I would suggest that some, you know, in some circumstances, even the person that that's happening to is not going to identify that as a discrimination issue. But they're educative opportunities for us. And even just in flagging that to people, you, you can sort of see people trying to come to terms with having to rethink how they see that person. And, it, and I think one of the things that we try and do it at a commission level is to very much understand that the the person coming to us is a person with a victim to crime issue or a discrimination issue or a health service issue. Let's deal with that. Let's not have a think about all the other things that they bring with them or that we know about them or that we've heard about them. Let's just deal with what the matter is in front of us. Yeah. And, and I think it goes back to that original point about what's the point of regulation in our space. And from our perspective, discrimination law says actually you should be able to access all those services with none of these barriers being put in your way because of those characteristics. Yeah. So how do we work to extend that, particularly, I think, into the, into the issues around mental health and mental illness because of that historic separation between, you know, mental illness is sort of over here and disabilities over here. Yeah. And I completely understand that, but I think it, it has contributed in some ways yeah. to those issues not being perceived as discrimination issues. 100%. Simon, you have to shut me down. I'm okay. Sure. okay. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I don't have that power. Um, you, you've, uh, I'll move on to, I always, I even had another thing to build on that, but we just have to move on. Um, otherwise this is going to be a four hour interview. Okay. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so you've got such a, I guess, a broad mandate, you know, like you've, we've touched on all the different areas you focus on. Have you noticed differences regulating health, mental health, aged care? Are there, are there differences that come to mind in terms of the challenges or opportunities um, regulating those different, I guess, domains or industries? Yeah, I think um, so health is the newest one for me. Um, and I think it's one of those areas where it's um, there's lots of standards, there's lots of regulation, there's lots of policies, there's lots of good work has gone into making sure that people's experience of a health service is safe and respectful and meets standards um, and all those things. But it's also um, 
I'm sometimes surprised about it's still sort of a command and control environment. And so sometimes you don't see that reflexive individual patient-centered response. What you see is a transactional relationship. And we know that all health services are striving towards that very, and we know lots of them get there in terms of that very patient-centered uh, approach. And I think it's one of the things that um, sort of surprised me a little bit was um, in, in discrimination law or in workplace law or industrial law, you're very used to bring the parties together and the parties are very happy to come together and, and try and work through the issues. It, health, it's, health, health services, there seems to have been, um, I guess, more of an approach, particularly in the conduct space. And so we see that in situations like police, where if a complaint's made, it, the conduct issue has to be dealt with first and the person gets lost. And, that, <laughs> and it's like, you know, multiple sometimes years later, we remember that there was a person who brought the complaint who actually didn't have a great experience, but by now they've either completely lost confidence, lost hope, moved into state if they're still able to, given the borders. Um, and so that I think has been a really interesting issue for me about my, uh, I think there is certainly space for all of us to make sure that we've got that person at the centre of what our process is. Obviously, particularly in health, if it's a if it's a colleague or something else, it's a different issue. But where it's a person who's accessing the health service, um, I think there is, sometimes there is a focus very much on the regulatory response without bringing the person along with you. And, I, you know, I think that's something certainly you know, and we're not perfect by any means, um, but it is something that we certainly try and work on. Yeah. Um, and I know even from other health commissioners that I deal with that that has been a slight shift for people around trying to work with the national regulator mm. um, around the conduct stuff, but not losing sight of the person who had a poor experience or an adverse outcome and is still looking for their explanation their conciliation process and and my role in facilitating that yeah um do, do you and i think sorry Nadia. no go on please no go when you're talking about that it a question that comes up for me and i'm not sure i'm actually not convinced this is uh, a right conclusion to come to but is part of that that there are significant power imbalances between what we term the complainant the the possibly the person accessing the service and traditional hierarchies within health services. Um, do you think there's a unique um, unaddressed power relationship there or do, you, or do you think those relationships exist um, across lots of different areas? I think they, uh, I think they exist across different areas for, di you know, uh, for different reasons. I mean, if, I, if, I, if my employment is in jeopardy, because of sexual harassment, you know, to take a current example, yeah. then my options are put up with it or lose my job. Yeah. Um, and sometimes in losing my job, if I put my hand up, I also sacrifice other jobs in the same sector. Yeah. And that, that you know, so, that, so there's big consequences there for some people. Um, 
particularly, uh, I guess, in tight economic times, as we've seen. And so I think the power relationships play out in different ways for different reasons. The health relationship, as you know, is so complex because if you're accessing that health service by necessity on a regular basis, you are very rarely going to complain about it because what you don't want to do is jeopardise that ongoing access. Um, or you might complain about it all the time because you're so concerned that the response you're getting is not adequate and is actually exacerbating the problem. And then that becomes the problem that people are dealing with is the fact that you put your yeah. hand up a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and the power in there, as, as you know, is there only so many places you can go to access a health service? I'm in a small jurisdiction. And so I've got a couple of major hospitals. If you have a bad time at one, you can almost certainly see most of the same people at the other hospital the next week because they move around quite a lot. Yeah. And so there can be real part of what we, part of what I have to think about in in my particular area is making sure that people don't lose confidence in the services because, and that I don't contribute to that because there's not a lot of choice. Yeah. And so we work very hard to work with the providers to improve services or to make sure that people's pathways are as smooth as possible or that, or that their particular issues accessing the service are recognised. Mm. But what we don't want to do is undermine confidence in services that generally provide an excellent service to many, many, many people. Mm -hmm. But the fact is there are some bad experiences and we need, we need to recognise that and use them to reduce the number of occurrences of that. Um, but I think, you know, health, health is, you know, health is a really tricky space because there's only so many people you can access who have that expertise, let's mm -hmm. face it. Mm -hmm. And, lots of people are afraid of annoying them and yeah. so you know it's a really it's a it's a really there is a power imbalance for a whole range of reasons but also as you know the people who run those systems are well educated very, you know very articulate well well know the processes and all that sort of thing um, and again I think sometimes that's where the benefit of our process around providing a resolution focused is to actually put some of those people in a room with someone who's accessed their service and not had a great experience yeah and not just try and explain it away but actually hear the story mm. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and and understand that the explanation in some cases the explanation they have been given by the people involved is not entirely accurate <laughs> yeah 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 especially you know those big entities are able to I spoke to Fiona, Professor Fiona Haynes, in a, a couple oh, yeah. of episodes ago, and she spoke about the, the bigger the organisation, the better their ability to socially construct compliance, so to, yep. to make what they look like, uh, what they do already look like it is um, compliance, or even to construct in your eyes as the regulator what compliance actually looks like. And I imagine that's a challenge. And, and even when you were talking about the... The, the lack of options to go between health services, it really does undermine the term we use, which is health consumer, because it's not really a traditional consumer relationship where you can 
sort of shop around. And it even gets further complicated within mental health settings where you're a forced consumer. So you're, you're not choosing yeah. the service. The service is choosing you and you don't want to be there. Um, and so that you know, creates a whole a tumble of further challenges, which uh, I, I shall not um, delve into because uh, uh, I want to get on to the next question, which is, you know, you've highlighted to me that regulation is, is exceedingly hard. Uh, you know, the, there's pressures from, from clients of, you know, the sectors or the services or organisations from the providers that you were just talking about, those, those high-ranking sort of very educated individuals, and from government who, uh, you know, might have their own interests in, in managing perception of those issues. How do you, on a personal level, what are the personal qualities that you believe are important to be an effective regulator in this environment? Um, and maybe maybe trying to locate it more at a lead, semi-leadership or leadership position um, rather than, you know, my early jobs as a sort of uh, front-lining phone lackey. Um, hey. I was working at a <laughs> no, I won't. None of your people were lackeys, just um, but more the, um, uh, at a leadership level, what, what kind of qualities, qualities do you think are, are necessary? I was just going to say that those guys on the phone, I tell you, I are critical in terms of identifying the risk matters for you. Let me it's... let me reverse that exact statement because I'd be <laughs> no, so grumpy. I would be so grumpy if somebody characterised my work that way. But um, I I have nothing but absolute praise for everybody likewise. who does that frontline work. It's likewise. it's hard. Um. Yeah, look, and I guess I've I've worked in much larger organisations and now in a smaller one. Um, and I think, and coming at it from a regulatory, you know, complaint handler across many, many jurisdictions, all that sort of thing, I think um, one of the things that I think is important is not to get remote from the work. Mm. So, you know, people sometimes, people describe being hands-on and it's like, I don't think you need to be handling complaints per se, but you, you need not to just be spending your time with stakeholders that are the corporate or organisational or government stakeholders that you work with. You actually do need to go out and be in spaces that your, you know, your constituents or your community groups are. Um, and, I, and I think being remote from those experiences means that um, when you're, as you say, getting a what we call a blamanged response, which is it's been through so many layers of people looking at it that it it is now sometimes content-free. <laughs> Lots of words, not a lot of content. Lawyer, lawyer's um, fingerprints all over it, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a lawyer and I wouldn't even mind a lawyer's response. Yeah. I'm insulting all of these people that I shouldn't insult. This is going terribly. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, but it, it's, well, I have a law degree. Let me correct that. But but I think it's, it. there is that thing around, um, A, in these positions, you need to be decisive, right? Because the thing that people hate is you're not making a decision on things and not forming a view on things. And so the, a lot of what you need to do is be decisive about what you're seeing in front of you and what your direction is and what's the next step because people don't want to be stuck in these processes and if you're going to if you're going to ask someone to do something through a recommendation or a finding or whatever you want to get to that as soon as you can because it's only it's it's only relevant from a time perspective because they will have moved on people have moved on so timing is i think is a big thing mm -hmm. um 
but I do think there is a thing about there is a thing about understanding the complexity of the people that I am providing a service for. And so I see some, you know, complaint handling bodies, we are about providing remedies for people. We're about providing communities with a place to go when they have a concern and government has given us that responsibility so that people feel confident in our organisations that even if they don't get the outcome they're looking for, they've been heard. and how do I do that effectively? And so I think I think there's a real thing about making sure that we treat everybody, and you know, and I keep going back to it with respect and dignity, and that is irrespective of how much or little substance a matter may have. Because when that person made the effort to bring it to me, it, it was their sense of aggrievedness, and that could be <laughs> a very large sense of aggrievedness because they had a very, what they perceived or what was a very poor experience. And so I think there is a real thing about not getting stuck in process to the point that, again, you lose sight of the person. And I think that's important at all elements, not, you know, not at my level in terms of Mm. um, if I see something that I don't agree with in terms of where we're heading with a particular matter, and I've had this experience quite recently, where I had, you know, and fair enough, I've got a fair number of complaints that I'm dealing, you know, my team are dealing with, but it was it was a matter where the person's employment was in jeopardy and we had not dealt with it quick enough. And so I rang them and apologised and, and it w- wasn't a comfortable conversation, mm-hmm. but that's my responsibility. It's not up to me to get someone else to do that. Yeah. You know, in bigger organisations, it's a different setup, but in my... In my organisation, you know, I have to take responsibility for those things. Mm. And I think remembering whatever opportunities you have to remember the people that you are dealing with and what value am I providing to them, not just what value am I providing to government or my or my corporate stakeholders, but what value do they see that I am providing, which is not about taking a, a long time to deal with their matter, but even when I get around to dealing with it, sending them a letter without talking to them to explain why we're not taking it further. And so you can see that come, yes, it does come out of my human rights Pollyanna background. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that's the thing that has, um, it's one of the things that has taught me A, to be responsive about what we do, which is not always use the same technique, not always follow the same path, don't use the same process for every matter because that won't always be the right the right answer for that person mm. or the or the right way of that organization being able to respond to that individual yeah um when i first went to melbourne one of the new things that they brought in down there were move on powers oh, yeah. and so the police were going out to the train stations and moving people on and and we had some so concerns for about it that they might not know so that's it largely affects homeless people um uh, yeah and one of the what we had concerns about it and we're asking for data and all those things. And so I suggested that we go out and just observe how they were using those powers. We got a list of where, where the police were going to be and we went to multiple places and observed. And as you know, behaviour changes when you observe. <laughs> <laughs> I think we, you know, I'm I'm comfortable in my office, but we actually need to get out. It's one of the ways that we 
stay connected with what we are, you know, what we're supposed to be achieving. Um, and that, and those sorts of approaches are taken in, you know, large scale human rights investigations. And I've been involved overseas with a number of those. And so, you know, I think again, my legislation says I can do these things. It doesn't say I can't do other things. Mm, yeah. And and so, yeah, I think I think there's real onus on us to make sure that we yes are using the breadth of powers that we have, but as you indicated before, using the media or using other regulators or getting leverage through community groups is not in my functions in my legislation, but there's nothing stopping me doing that. And if that's the appropriate way to go about it, I should be doing that. Yeah, you're right. And and, and in that, the, obviously, the legislation doesn't, um, well, you're right about everything you said and who am I to say you're not. But uh, one thing that particularly came up when you were talking about that was uh, saying that the legislation doesn't say, you know, that you can't do other things. It also doesn't say when you need to do things. Uh, and so it says you can do something, but... Uh, I think that's where the personal qualities come in, in terms of when to do something and, and when to use that power, when you when to choose one strategy rather than, than another strategy. And, and a lot of that, uh, I imagine a lot of the, the wisdom that, that, that an office gets is that connection to the street level or to what's actually happening, uh, you know, in people's lives where the issues are happening. You've given a very, very rich understanding of, I would call it street level justice um, and uh, uh, there's a street level bureaucrats and that that's a term not used negatively. Um, I think of when, when I hear you uh, describe the work of your, uh, your office, it sounds to me like street level justice and, and how that connects across so many different practice areas, uh, the, the different approaches to building capital so that you can influence uh, the stakeholders you're working with, but then also make sure it's a really dignified experience for people who are making those complaints. You've also explained some of the personal qualities that the people should have as they uh, as they come into leadership positions as regulators. But the the final question that we always have is, what's one thing that you want the audience to go away and to do today after listening to you? Um, I, th I think one of the things that I um, like to think about, it, so if people, if people use my process and they provide negative feedback, as that example I've just given you, um, I, I, you know, my take on it is if people, if people are providing feedback, we need to take it really seriously. And they go to a lot of effort. And sometimes, as we know, that's an off-the-cuff, I hate you, I didn't get the outcome I was looking for. Um, but I think that feedback is really critical and I um, think sometimes we are too attuned to making it the exception <laughs> Yeah. yeah. rather than understanding that actually that, you know, and particularly for the larger organisations, so when, you, when you're getting thousands of them, so, for example, when I was working with the Privacy Commissioner um, and we were getting thousands and thousands of matters, but you could see in the feedback that one of the issues that we had quite early on in my days there was we were very good at getting through matters, but we weren't paying enough attention 
to where to people wanting to resolve a complaint as opposed to just getting a written explanation of what had happened. Yeah. And so we changed our process and provided that opportunity. And so I think often in often when we're and, and the reason I say feedback is because uh, you know as a, I don't make complaints very often and so the one or two in my recent time of online life um, I've I've been absolutely so impressed by the speed of the response by the comprehensive nature of the response by the by the way if there's anything else we can do for you and and it's something that has reinforced for me that it's so important that we take that feedback seriously um, but equally, like I said, that we don't try and make it the exception, um, and it, and I, you know, and that we and that we go out and get it rather than just assume that silence is, you know, happiness, because generally, as we know, it isn't. <laughs> yeah, and certainly not from from the most marginalised um, groups that we often come to come to serve. Um, silence. No. So how so how do we? Like, how do I make that process more accessible for them? So I've gone to the effort to bring the matter to us. How do I actually go back and ask them about that? And I think feedback, you know, often we're waiting on it coming in instead of going out to get it. And as a person who's run multiple complaint handling services, I'm used to someone in the room going, you took five years to handle my complaint. And, but, and it's like completely legitimate. I completely get that. I know that was 12 years ago. <laughs> We've tried to move on since then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think as well, if you are making a complaint to somebody and you have poor experience, give them the feedback. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, that is also something that we really ask people to do is don't go off and, as people say, don't go off and moan about it or stick it on a Facebook page. Please come and tell me about it because I'm actually the person that can do something about it. Yeah, and I think that's a really important message for, for, for others in this um, who are listening, who um, uh, some, some people listening to the podcast here might um, uh, experience multiple um, forms of disadvantage, others might not. And, and if you experience something in, uh, in a healthcare setting, in another, um, you know, something a family member experienced in an aged care setting, there's almost an obligation on you to speak up and um, uh, with the consent of anyone involved, if it's not you, speak up about that experience because uh, if you can, uh, if you're one of those positions in a position of being more fortunate, speak up because it will help someone else in a similar situation down the line. You'll be changing the systems through that street-level justice um, approach that, um, that I've coined and copyrighted within this podcast. Um, you, you will improve those services and that experience to the world for someone else. You'll never, you'll never meet them, but, but um, you can trust that you, you will have made a difference. Um, uh, Karen, I've had a, a wonderful uh, time talking with you today. Um, I promise I will respond diligently to the complaints from your phone staff and the lawyers who are offended by uh, my comments today. And I'll apply a human rights framework and I'll allow you to audit my responses. But thank you so much for speaking with me today. And um, it's been a pleasure. No, thanks, Simon. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you.